Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. I am so over-the-top excited here because we're talking about behavior. And behavior is the number one, not number two, not number, not number three or four. It is the number one reason why our animals die. We'll have an explanation for exactly what I just said in a moment. But we're also talking with a veterinary behaviorist who teaches others as she does in this book, which you can get too. It's, it's like the Bible. If you're interested in animal behavior, this is the book authored by Dr. Gary Landsberg, Dr. Lowell Ackerman, and my guest and my friend, Dr. Lisa Radasta, who co-authored Behavior Problems of the Dog and Cat. Good morning, Dr. Radasta. Good morning. Thank you for having me and always supporting behavior, 100%. Well, it is because in part what I just said. So if there, there I am, say, at a swanky cocktail party or wherever I am, walking in the dog park, the questions people ask me might be, I'm not a veterinarian, so they shouldn't be asking me about cancer in dogs or heart disease in dogs, but even veterinarians don't get that question as often as they get behavior questions, which come in, I think, one of two buckets. I've got a really serious problem. I'm bordering on giving up that dog or cat as a result, or I'm just curious, why do dogs poop in that direction all the time? Or why does my cat uh, always do this at three in the morning? And I hear, and it's just curiosity more than anything else. Behavior, though, is what it's all about. And was I right when I said that is the number one reason why animals are relinquished or animals die altogether? And I mean relinquished to shelters or in the case of cats, sometimes just booted outside. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. So as far as we know from the studies that have been done, behavioral reasons are the primary reasons for relinquishment to shelters and to rescues. We also know, of course, from some work that's been done by, uh, I believe it's Sheila Segerson, looking at are people truthful when they drop animals off and at, at shelters and at rescues. And apparently, if they think that what they say will affect what happens to the pet, they are not truthful. It's one of the things that study showed. So as far as we know, yeah, right, it's behavior. And um, you're right, veterinarians aren't taught very much about behavioral medicine. And the top two questions that veterinarians get in exam rooms, behavior and nutrition, the two things they learn the least about in vet school, no lie, behavior and nutrition. So they're really ill-equipped to answer these questions. And a lot of vets are really um, nervous. They get anxious and they don't know what to say. So they avoid entirely even asking about behavior problems, which, you know what, I understand when you don't feel comfortable with something, you don't want to be in an exam room and not know what to say. So part of what we did with this book, and you know, Gary and I uh, edited the book, and we wrote a lot of the chapters ourselves and then edited the entire book, and we kept saying, what is the voice, right? What should be the voice of this book? And he would always say to me, Lisa, this is your perspective. This book should be your perspective. My perspective is behavior is easy. It's not hard. That should look at it as something hard. It is just like everything else that they do. It should be practical. And the other perspective woven, woven throughout the entire book is that behavior is not separate. We separated before COVID. We all kind of, or many of us, separated emotional distress and physical distress. And I think COVID kind of taught 
the people that were still thinking that way a lesson. No, it's all one thing. If you are emotionally distressed, physically, you are not well. And that is another theme that is throughout the book, almost in every chapter, reminding veterinarians that maybe your patient isn't well, and that is why their behavior looks this way. Maybe their behavior looks this way, and that makes them unwell. But it's one thing. It's one kind of one medicine, right? So that's our themes. And what we're hoping is that vets will be able to have a readable book that's based in science. Gary and I say this is a labor of science and love. And it really is. Yeah, well, it is, I'm sure. I know for a fact, because how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, somewhere, I, it was, I can't remember if it was 19 or 20. I was at VMX, which for those listening is a, the biggest veterinary conference in the world happens to be held, uh, in North America rather, happens to be held in Orlando. So Gary Landsberg, who is an icon of behavior. So that would be like talking to like Paul Anka of behavior. Okay. <laughs> right. So here, he happens to be my friend. I, I adore, adore him. He's mentored me for my lifetime. Yes. So talking to him and I say, your book. But this is a problem, dude. Your book is outdated and, and it's 10 years old. It must have been 2020. I'm like, it's 10 years old. You're not helping anybody with this book. And he said, Lisa, I, I'm getting older. He said, do you want to rewrite this book? And you know, Steve knows me and I pretty much jump and then hope I get my wings on the way down. And most of the time <laughs> I get my wings. Sometimes I crash. So I was like, yeah, I could write this book. So then that was how it was born and um, was just just with that conversation. And then he followed up and said, okay, well, who do you want to write this chapter and that chapter? And so it took about three years to go from me trying to sell him on, we need to update this book and, and us actually bringing it to publication. Well, I want to talk about uh, some specific behavior problems with radio time. We can't dive in. I know the way you'd like to dive in. I think the trendiest one, if you will, and I'd argue I hear about this anecdotally for dogs more than any other issue now, and that is separation anxiety. So I'll start here with my premise, and that is this should be a medical diagnosis. I don't believe that most pet parents say, oh, my dog probably has diabetes, uh, or my dog might have another, I, I, I don't know, medical issue, whatever that might be. I don't think that separation anxiety is any different. I don't think we ought to be as pet parents diagnosing that. I do believe veterinarians should be the one doing it for a variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, I I agree with you. I want to raise pet parent awareness, and I want veterinarians to be making that diagnosis. And I like the way that you uh, made the analogy to diabetes, because, you know, diabetes is a physiologic change in the body, right? And so is separation, fear, phobia, distress, anxiety, whatever, you know, you're calling, whatever we're calling it this week, (laughs) there's a physiologic change in the body. And so we do want that we want a veterinarian involved in that, of course. Yeah. And also, it can be misdiagnosed. Uh, and uh, let me go back to what you were saying. It, would, do you agree that it literally is a panic attack? Oh, well, it is a panic attack, right? There's a physiologic response. So the heart beats faster, the, uh, the breathing rate, right? The, the respirations per minute are going to increase. The blood flow gets shunted to the muscles, so the animal's ready for fight, flight, freeze, or fidget. The gut slows down, like 
all of those things that happen with the panic attack happen with a separation related disorder. So it's absolutely a panic attack. And what I want pet parents to know is you have to pay attention. If your dog is a little depressed when you leave, that's a sign. Does that mean absolutely your dog will be like my patient who ended up jumping out of a second story window and ending up on the roof of the house of the of the first story of the house, which wow. is where he was when the pet parents came home? Yeah. Maybe not, but a depressed dog is a dog who has at least the foundation for becoming a dog with separation-related disorder. And what's going to push them in is change of life. Uh, COVID, you're home a lot, right? You go back to work. Maybe maternity leave, paternity leave, right? So any sort of change in the family, a baby entering the home, or an extended vacation, boarding at a boarding facility, any of those things can take a dog who's predisposed and move them into actual full-blown separation fear or phobia. So we want people on the lookout for those things. So I want to run something by you that I haven't privately, and we'll see how it works on the radio regarding separation anxiety. And I also want to talk more about that as well as, yes, we'll get to cats, I promise, when we come back with Dr. Lisa Radasta on WGN. The name of the book is Behavior Problems of the Dog and Cat. I don't believe there's a problem. There isn't an issue that dogs and cats may suffer from that isn't in this book, which I call a Bible. It is incredibly comprehensive. Uh, Dr. Radasta wrote this book along with Dr. Lisa Radasta as our guest, if you are just joining us, with Dr. Gary Landsberg and Dr. Lowell Ackerman. All right, we're talking about separation anxiety, and I hear veterinarians and pet parents all the time say, my dog has mild anxiety because of X, Y, and Z, or my dog has more severe anxiety, like the dog you describe that jumped out of the window and landed on a roof. Certainly, that is severe. I don't think anyone would argue that. But, you know, sometimes I might express my anxiety very differently than Dr. Lisa Radasta's. And my, here's what I'm now saying, is that we have to find a new way of putting this because a dog that maybe hypersalivates, salivates a lot, is drooling and leaves that drool for the pet parent to see, maybe scratching at the door. Okay, that's one dog. The second dog maybe is barking and barking and barking and does those things I just said and is also tearing up pillows in the house and maybe is doing some other things too, but does one dog actually feel more panicked than the other dog? Are they just expressing the same panic differently? And what I'm telling veterinarians is we don't exactly know that. What I don't know is if you, Dr. Lisa Radasta, agree with me. Yeah, so we don't know, but there are ways we can know. So a couple, there's there's gross observation of the patient, right? So that's looking at a dog and saying, okay, I know what my dog's baseline is. I know what my dog looks like when he's happy. I know what he looks like when he's resting. I think most pet parents who are even moderately engaged with their pet knows that, right? So you know what your pet looks like when they are their happy, relaxed selves, their playful selves, their happy selves, you can compare any other body language to that. If there's deviation from that, it gives you pause. So there's gross observation. Now, veterinarians can observe in the exam room, but one of the first things, and, and I've had a lot of residents, so I train doctors, right? I train residents 
uh, so they, they are ready to sit for the board exam. And they spend about three years with me usually. And so one of the things they get hung up on is they say, Dr. Adasta, but the dog was very scared in the room. And then I say, well, that doesn't mean he's scared at home just because he's scared at the veterinarian's office. So a veterinarian might see a dog and say he's anxious. He may not be that way at home. He'd have to see a video. But there are some cool things that we have done here at my practice and that I think will be done in the future, testing stress. So there's this thing called the fecal cortisol, which does not have a lot of research behind it in dogs. But I would say between my practice and then my colleague, Amy Pike, and my other colleague, Amy Larn, we've run thousands and thousands of samples. And now there is a researcher trying to look at those samples and say, what does this mean? Like, can you correlate a increased cortisol in the feces with increased stress? And fecal cortisol is done all the time in zoos. It's done by biologists um, on wild animals that are being observed outside of captivity as a way to measure stress. It's been done in cats as well. You have a unique love for cats. So I think you'll be interested in that. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. There's also a hair cortisol. So cortisol is this uh, blunt measurement, really, of stress. So when I get um, on my gravel bike and I ride for three hours, my cortisol might be increased. My body's under stress. My body has mounted a stress response. If I am grieving for a lost pet, I would be under stress. So cortisol is not a specific measurement, but there uh, are ways to measure cortisol in toenails, in hair, and in feces. So things are coming down the pike and we're getting that information in where you will be able to run as a baseline your pet's stress level. These things are not that far away and it's going to be extremely exciting, at least for me, to be able to have that as part of a baseline. Okay, so if your dog is diagnosed with separation anxiety, uh, we only have a couple minutes in this segment, but briefly, is there hope Oh, my God. Well, there's always hope. There's always 100% of the time hope, okay? But the problem is hope is not a strategy. You have to have a strategy. You have to go to your vet and make sure the diagnosis is correct because noise phobia can look a lot like separation anxiety and vice versa, okay? So you make sure you get the right diagnosis, clear your mind of the cobwebs of bias, and be open to medication and supplements, and then make sure that the training plan you get is with a trainer that knows how to work on separation anxiety. And there's at least three ways, completely different ways to work on this problem. Okay. So there's alternative plans if the first plan doesn't work. And I'd argue what works for one dog may not work for another dog when it comes to a lot of things, including separation anxiety. Uh, so yeah. I want to talk about medication a little bit. I don't know that if, uh, okay. So imagine me in a, Chicago high rise and I'm on the 48th floor and I'm wearing suspenders. I never wear suspenders, but on this day I am. And I'm, I'm being held out the window by my suspenders and someone is asking me to learn some sort of math problem. And unlike you, I'm pretty bad in math anyway. And I'm like, how do I do that? And I'm halfway out the window on the 48th floor. I'm in terror. I'm, I'm panicked. You can't learn when you're panicked, if you're a person or a dog either, or a cat. And that's where I'm going. Can you talk about what psychopharmaceuticals truly do? Yeah, so, uh, and, and you're right, of course, that the fight or flight response is going to shut down 
rational thinking. You know, if I'm a bunny and I've got a, a coyote chasing me, I don't want to stop and do some calculus. You know, I want to get in there and run as fast as I can. So you shut off that thinking brain. You go into autopilot. You try to save your own life. And that is what's happening when dogs have separation anxiety and they're having panic attacks. So what pharmaceuticals should do is a couple of things. Decrease stress to improve quality of life. Okay. Number two, they should open the door to learning. We know the rational part of the brain is shut off. How are we going to turn it back on? We can't turn it back on without changing the neurochemistry of the brain. What are these medications not supposed to do? They're not supposed to make your dog a zombie. Let that go. That is probably the number one question that I get. Okay, at least in the U.S., the last statistic I've seen is 26% of all people in the U.S. are on some sort of prescribed psychotropic medication for emotional disease. So just quarter of the people in your neighborhood. They're not zombies unless, you know, you're living in a land of zombies. These are regular <laughs> people going to work, raising their kids, living their lives. Okay, so that's not what's supposed to happen. Your dog is not supposed to be really sedated unless that's the goal. And sometimes we need to sleep. Sometimes I want to sleep through a procedure because it's scary to me. It's okay. It's okay to do that. So sometimes we do want dogs to sleep, but that's something that you have to go over and talk to your veterinarian about. People want to know how long their dogs are going to be on the meds. As long as, let's just take a dog with separation anxiety that lives in a high rise. Let's just take that, that dog. Dr. Okay? Rodasta, we're going to, we're going to yes. take that dog in the yes. high rise. We're not going to do anything <laughs> except break for a commercial or two. And then we'll be right back with Dr. Lisa Radasta, veterinary behaviorist and co-author of Behavior Problems of the Dog and Cat. It's coming up just around the corner of the Super Bowl. Now, WGN will cover the Super Bowl uh, as far as the sports part of it. I am here to talk about the pet part of it. Because instead of the Super Bowl, for some dogs, it is the toilet bowl. And that is a problem. And here you have, I mean, really, you have all these people coming over to your house, right? And they forget to put down the thing and the dog walks into the bathroom and you know what goes on from there. And that isn't good. Uh, Some dogs get anxious or nervous about all these people coming over. What do you do about that? Put them in another room But in advance of those people coming over, some of you say, I don't want to give my dog drugs. I understand that. So it's not a drug. It's not a pharmaceutical. It's not a nutritional supplement. It's like a hybrid in between called a nutraceutical. It's called Zilkeen, and it's hydrolyzed milk protein. That's all it is. So it's safe to use Z-Y-L-K-E-N-E. Ask your veterinarian or Google if you want to know more. And have a great party just so the dog or cat don't get into the beer. Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Good morning. If you're just joining us, we're talking with the one and only Dr. Lisa Radasta. She's a veterinary behaviorist who happens to teach other veterinary behaviorists, co-author of the book. New book. New version, anyway. Behavior Problems of the Dog and Cat. Everything! Everything is covered in this book, including separation anxiety in dogs. So we last left off in the high rise, and the dog is now getting pharmaceuticals appropriately. But there are some misconceptions sometimes that people always ask about, and I think that's where we left off. Yeah, so second misconception, I don't know if we're on two or three, but people want to know how long their dog will be on a medication. And that dog with separation anxiety in the high rise, here's why it's important the dog's in a high rise. Because the dog has neighbors with shared walls. 
dogs with neighbors with shared walls can't bark. They can't make a sound, right? Because if someone's home, then they may complain and it becomes a big mess for the pet parent. That dog may be on medication for the rest of his or her life, okay? People want to know if the medication will harm their pet. The medications that we use are not chemotherapy drugs, okay? They don't have this massive list of long-term horrible side effects. No, I'm going to put all the side effects together for you of all the drugs. Your dog might get sleepy. So just discontinue the medication. Your dog won't be sleepy anymore within hours, okay? Maximum three days, depending on the medication. Your dog might have gastrointestinal upset. That can happen with a treat much less a medication. Your dog might get agitated. That's the one that scares people, right? What if my dog gets agitated? That could happen, but that's why you never give the first dose of any medication uh, and then leave the house. You always stay with your pet. There might be changes in appetite up or down. Those are the major things that you are going to see when you give medications. And those are potential side effects. It doesn't mean they always occur and they are transient. So they go away. As far as effect on organs, little to no. And I would just say no effect, except there's probably some animal out there where they might have um, an increase in liver enzymes. But these are medications that are super safe. So let that fear go because it's unfounded. All right. I want to talk about some other things as well. Uh, We were talking to Dr. Ernie Ward about overweight and obese pets. Uh, he, he, as you know, is the president uh, and founder of the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention. And I made a claim. He agreed with me. And I suggested that at least many of the dogs that are obese or cats, maybe more often even in cats, might be clinically depressed. And we were also previously talking about dogs coming back uh, or humans coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome Uh, on Memorial Day, as we were talking about our soldiers, but we were also talking about military working dogs, who I said may feel the same, may have post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome. So am I way overdoing it, anthropomorphizing, being crazy? I've not asked you about this. You can call me crazy if you like. Or is this something we now, you call me crazy frequently anyway. So is this now something we better understand today compared to say 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah. So as far as PTSD, that's a thing. We don't have to, we don't have to guess if it's a thing. You know who Walt Burkhardt is and people listening may not, but I want you to imagine a a tall, thin man who always wears a wide brimmed hat, who is quiet, but incredibly intelligent and kind and generous and brilliant. He ran the behavior program at the Lackland Air Force Base for many years. So he saw the dogs coming back, right? This guy's no joke. And he was the first one to really present to us, the rest of the vet behaviors, that PTSD happens in war zone dogs. This is no joke. It's real. He gave us the diagnostic criteria for it. And I, since he enlightened us, right? Because sometimes we, you wait for an innovator, You know what I'm saying? To really say, hey, no, guys, what you think is real is really, it's there. And I certainly see pets now. And I don't know if we have time for a story. Steve, you know, I am a story. I just tell you, I'll try to make it fast. Have a little patient, little fluff ball, cutie patootie patient walking along in the neighborhood with, with another little dog that the same person has. It's the same family. And they've got a third little dog in the house, elderly couple, two dogs get out of a yard. You know what's coming, Steve. Oh, one of, Right. So everybody's Mm. attacked. The lady's injured. 
one of the little dogs is killed. My patient, who ends up, who ends up being my patient, survives. The lady crawls, this is no lie, to her front door, knocks on the door, but the old man inside doesn't know. Like, what's going on? So he just opens the door, dog gets in, injures him, injures the other elderly dog. Luckily, they survive. I see that patient. That patient has PTSD. Yeah. Right? Has all the criteria. He is petrified to go outside. Petrified. Because this happens in his own driveway. So absolutely, dogs suffer the same way that we do from these hugely traumatic incidents. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and then about the clinically depressed part where, where I began all this, can our pets be, as people are, sometimes diagnosed clinically depressed? Is that possible? Yeah. So we can't diagnose it because we don't have criteria for it. So now we're getting into the bureaucracy of veterinary medicine. But, you know, uh, diagnoses are labels, and we want to all be speaking the same language if we're going to label something. So we don't have criteria for it. What I can tell you is that I have seen it mostly in dogs who are grieving. Hmm. And it looks like depression to me. And if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It looks like depression to me because dogs, as you know, grieve just like we do. And that is where I've seen patients like that, that I think fit that criteria. Yeah, and I also would argue that, uh, because we really haven't talked about cats, for which I apologize, uh, but one one notion is that, okay, that overweight or more particularly obese cat uh, who lives to be on the sofa and to eat, and if you're lucky, uses the litter box, cannot groom himself or herself. Uh, there's no prey, there's, the prey drive is still there, but the ability, because the cat is so obese to do anything more than just move a few feet during the course of the day, that cat is now sleeping all day and maybe four years old. So I would suggest that that cat could be, understand your point about there's no criteria, but if it quacks like a duck thing that you said, if it's active, yeah, that cat can be clinically depressed. Well, that cat can have all the outward signs of that. And I can say for sure that cat has a poor quality of life. I mean, food yeah. is not love. And um, we most certainly, as you know, need to enrich the lives of our cat family members because they do end up sometimes having only food and petting from us as stuff to do. And when that's all you have to do, you do overeat. Right. And then it's a kind of vicious iterative cycle, you know? Uh, Yep. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Speaking of cats, that's what we are going to do. But the book is called behavior problems of the dog and cat. What is the most common behavior problem? When it comes to cats, we will find out with Dr. Lisa Radasta when we come back on WGN. Dr. Lisa Radasta is the co-author of this book, Behavior Problems of the Dog and Cat. We are talking cats right now. So what is the most common behavior problem, at least that you see, regarding cats? Also, if we look at literature, what we wrote in the book, right, it's going to be elimination problems. However... I'm going to go kind of off a little bit and say the most common problem I see, so not why people bring their pet to me, but what I see is fear of the vet. And I think that is a major, major problem that goes unrecognized and untreated because it is uh, something that I think people don't think of. Like, for example, my cat is here today. 
And as we were restraining, holding him, we have a big towel wrapped around him. The person who's there with me says, oh, he's easy. Well, first of all, he has drugs on board. But second of all, he is easy because he freezes. In other words, he's easy to manage as a veterinarian because he doesn't fight you, right? But he's petrified. You can feel him breathing. You can feel his heart beating so fast. So, you know, that problem as a regular pet parent, I can get him in the carrier and the veterinarian can draw blood from him. That cat would never be medicated, right, by most general practitioners. But he needs to be medicated so that he can get the medical care that he needs. So to me, that is a major problem. Cats are not going to the vet enough. They are not being checked out. I'm guilty of it myself. It took three visits to get my cat here today, three separate visits Hmm. to get blood from him, three different drug trials to get blood from him. When my dog needs something, I just bring him in. Dogs come in. They get better health care. It's not acceptable. Cats are not second-class citizens. But in order to get them into the hospital, they have to be calmer. And yes, people don't bring their cat to me for that, but I think it's a bigger problem than elimination outside the box because it is rampant. I want to talk. Yeah, I want to talk a little about that. So you and I are uh, we're there at the beginning, and literally for a while we were on the same speaking circuit together. I think you followed me or I followed you. I don't remember that. But uh, I do know this, that I would stand up in front of an audience and still do of veterinary professionals and say that most of our cats, and I'm talking about the fear-free initiative, most of our cats are so afraid, terrified, I'd say this then. They actually may think they are going to die in part to make my point, but I also think that might be true. We'll never know. But I do think it is that that extreme, for lack of a better word, that these cats may actually believe I am going to die right now, which is one thing that makes the Fear Free Initiative so, so incredibly important. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So first of all, yes, you're right. They do think they're going to die. Now, they may not be saying, I think I'm going to die now. But just the the physiology of what happens in the brain when the body goes into fight or flight, the body won't go into fight or flight if there is not a stressor present that is a significant threat in the eyes of the animal. Okay. So yes, the animal's brain, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the brain believes that the body is going to die, or they wouldn't kick us into a stress response, right? We wouldn't get the uh, cascade of neurotransmitters. So yeah, for sure, Mm -hmm. that is what's happening. And talk about fear-free a little bit, because I know you and I were on board at the very, very beginning, really, and we saw the possibilities, and why is this so this movement, if you will, so incredibly important? I know it is to you. Yeah, it's incredibly important to me. And I'm happy that I was able to be a part of like, you know, when we first started, we were like you say, this little group, this little band of people that kind of traveled around and spread the word led by Marty Becker, of course. Uh, So fear free, uh, a couple of reasons why it's so important. Number one, it's the right thing to do. Sometimes you just got to say the truth. The right thing to do is to be kind to animals. And I think for a long time, veterinarians, we were taught that you had to get things done because that was how you were kind. That is how you showed love was to deliver medical care. 
And that is still true to some extent. But the, the lie that veterinary students are still being fed, if I may be so blunt, is that the only way to deliver that medical care in some instances or at some veterinary schools in all instances is to deliver it via traditional restraint and handling. And that is just blatantly incorrect. You will absolutely affect blood work. You'll affect your um, white blood cells for sure if the animal's stressed. Blood glucose will not be accurate. Body temperature, heart rate. And when the heart is going very fast, by the way, due to fear or stress or some other reason, you cannot hear a murmur as well as when that heart is slowed down a little bit. Respiratory rate is high, which sometimes if an animal is panting, you can't hear the heart, right? These are really important parameters we use to measure health, and you cannot get accurate results if your pet or your patient is too stressed. So it is a huge deal. And also, I think what I see in my um, in my externs that I'm teaching and the interns, so these are baby doctors, right? What I'm seeing is that they're coming to the table with less judgment, less judgment, more empathy for clients who may be making uh, decisions under different parameters in them. And I think that's part of what Fear Free is about. It's about looking at that client as a human being, having empathy for them and an empathy for the patient and not just there to deliver medical care. Well, and also, well stated, and, and also to understand and put into action, if you will, the connection between emotional well-being and physical well-being, physical well-being and emotional well-being. They are connected, correct? They are connected. And, you know, to have a panic response every day, so if you have, let's say, a cat who's intimidated by another cat in the house, right, to have a panic response every day puts your body into fight or flight. If that was a human being, we'd be taking action. If that was my best girlfriend, I'd be like, honey, we have got to get to a spa. We have got to <laughs> give you an exercise plan. We have got to calm you down. Right. But when it's a cat, we say, oh, he doesn't get along with his brother. No, it's not okay to be beaten up in your own house. It's not acceptable and it's not a proper way to live. So now I'm getting into just stress and how it affects animals every day. Back to how that contributes to how we practice veterinary medicine. But by practicing in a fear-free way, it really pushes the veterinarian and the veterinary healthcare team to say, how is your pet doing at home? You now have, your, a, Dr. Radasta, yeah. we're running out of time, but very quickly, yeah. you now have a website that reaches out as well as in your social media to pet parents, right? Well, yeah. So our, yeah, so our FBBS, Florida Veterinary Behavior Service website is very pet parent friendly. We have all kinds of articles and on our social media, which is my name, Dr. Lisa Radasta, we have the link trees. So I have a cat resources, dog resources, and a vet resources link tree. So then when cat pet parents are like, I don't know how to train my cat to the carrier, just go to our link tree, which is an Instagram on my bio, and you'll see all my curated sources for cat carrier training or for dogs, it's muzzle training. So we do have as many resources as I can get out there. I'm trying to get out for people to be able to help themselves, you know, and help their pets. Indeed you do. You're quite incredible. Uh, Co-authored with Dr. Gary Landsberg, Dr. Lowell Ackerman. Here she is, Dr. Lisa Radasta, Behavior Problems of the Dog and Cat. It truly is a Bible which veterinarians, veterinary behaviorists, your own colleagues that are specialists, will read. I will too, because what you have to say is important. And this is this is the book 
Behavior Problems of the Dog and Cat, Dr. Lisa Radasta, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Keep crusading for the pets. I wonder what Dr. Radasta would think of this study, because it's a behavior study. We'd love to see more behavior studies. It's interesting. It's interesting, first of all, because for humans, dogs are used as a model for aging. And you wonder if this is the case for people, too. So we've all experienced dogs, as they age, walk slower and slower and slower. Now, part of that could be arthritis as well. Part of that could be just a lack of mobility as people or dogs age Lack of mobility or cat's age is going to be a part of it, but it turns out slow walking is related to the more likelihood of dementia or what's called canine cognitive dysfunction syndrome. Researchers found that in senior dogs, size doesn't matter either. So if a a small dog slows down in walking as they would when they age, well, same thing as a big dog slowing down as that big dog ages as well. The likelihood of dementia increases because the walking becomes slower. That's interesting, isn't it? I think it is anyway, but what the study doesn't tell us is, okay, how to, if motivating the dog to walk faster makes a difference. So if you could use treats or just say, come on, come on, come on, if that works, if the dog can hear you say, come on, come on, come on, come on, then does that make a difference? Does that make canine cognitive dysfunction syndrome, less likely, or doggy dementia, less likely. I don't know the answer to that. According to the Alzheimer's Society, in a study of 716 people with an average age of 82 years, people who were at the bottom 10% in terms of daily physical activity were more than twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease compared to those in the top 10%. Just interesting stuff, I think. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, right here on WGN.